0: Welcome to the 403 Forbidden podcast. In this episode, our lovely curators, Eula5, will talk about the complicated arena where ownership in the digital and physical realms coincide. 403 Forbidden is a digital exhibition that explores the way identity and ownership are maintained and negotiated in digital spaces. At the apex of the digital revolution, we have become experts at building and curating our online identity which transcends our physical limitations. As we carefully navigate sensibilities of taste and content, form judgments, and learn from immaterial interactions with one another, we establish our critical consciousness. This agency is a rite of passage. It draws us closer to our two-dimensional avatars and allows us to see beyond the scope of their purely representational function. They are us and we are them. And we are YULA Collective. The overarching theme of our exhibition is ownership online.
1: Hi, I'm Kalina.
2: Hi, I'm Neo. Hi, I'm Razia.
0: Hi, I'm Candid.
2: And I'm Mama. When we
0: were brainstorming as a team and discussing our different ideas, I remember how we discussed the parallels between. Um, the ways of claiming ownership in real life and online. Copyright is probably the mode of ownership in general that we're all familiar with. According to Investopedia's definition, is the legal right of the owner of intellectual property. In simpler terms, copyright is the right to copy. This means that the original creators of products and anyone they give authorization to are the only ones with the exclusive right to reproduce the work. In the past, when we were dealing with physical copies of books, physical copies of CDs or cassettes, etc., controlling copyright was much easier. Of course, people back then found ways to circumvent copyright laws anyways, with mixtapes or bootleg cassettes, photocopies, you name it. On the internet, though, things propagate and evolve at a much faster rate. You know, I could leak your album today and send it to someone halfway across the world in a matter of minutes. Even though it's harder to enforce, we often see big corporations attempting and often failing to place physical conceptions of ownership from the pre-internet era into the digital sphere with copyright law kind of lagging behind. An example of this would be DRM, so digital rights management software, which prevents users from redistributing content that they've purchased. We see this with music, with games, with films, with ebooks, with software, etc. And as media products evolve from physical objects like disks to the subscription business model. Examples of DRM that we can find in everyday life are, for example, product keys and serial numbers, which, you know, people find ways to crack um, with key gens and whatnot. We have limited installations. So, for example, I remember buying a song on Google Play Music, which is, you know, becoming obsolete. And I was only allowed to download the actual mp 3 Twice, right? So I can download it on a device, sure. But if I wanted the actual MP3 file, the you know I I've only had like a set limit of downloads. There's also encryption. So with DVDs, you have, you know, they used to limit how content could be played so that people can like access the files within the DVD. And iTunes used to have this where you could only play songs purchased on iTunes on Apple devices. And there's also time and renting limits. So you see this with eBooks and online PDFs. Um, I remember when I would borrow books from the municipal library here, I had to download, I had to download them using Adobe Digital Editions and it would limit the amount of copies that could be rented at a time and it would get deleted from your reader once the time is up. So, you know, it's it's like a way of, it's like when you're renting a physical book, but they're trying to extend that into the digital sphere. And of course, people find ways to like circumvent this. I, I just found it interesting
1: how uh, digital ownership, like when you own a song Online, there is no physical you know uh counterpart to it, and the way I think about it sometimes is like when you purchase something online you don 't actually own it you you own the right to listen to it mm-hmm. I, I, you know I, I subscribe to you know I, I subscribe to spotify it 's one of you know <laughs> well my vices but i, I don 't own any of the things that I hear there uh you know a copy of i I, I just own this right to listen to them without, you know, having, um, to endure ads that, you know, consistently break up, um, uh, my, my, you know, experience, um, and, uh, you know, the subscription service, like, as you mentioned, we, you know, we are moving gradually to a subscription business model. It's very convenient and like, it offers curation to a certain extent, but it's not lucrative mm-hmm. for us, it, it, except, you know, to some extent, there is no, um, you know, waste maybe, maybe it is less waste, but at the same time, it's, it's totally eradicating any kind of concept of ownership for any software ever. So if, you know, if you take like, Adobe Creative Suit, I remember when it wasn't a subscription and when you just bought Mm -hmm. the software for quite a bit of money, but you owned it, right? Mm -hmm. And you can upgrade it without, like, having to buy it again, I thought, I think. And now it's like, you know, in 2013, Adobe switched to the subscription model. Mm -hmm. Um, And a student discount or not, after the two-year mark, it becomes Mm -hmm. more expensive uh, of of having the product, owning it via subscription versus owning it ownership of anything in the digital space is extremely precarious like we need to like think
0: about that (laughs) yeah and I remember when Adobe first came out with with that subscription model like I remember it vividly and they tried to advertise this as like yeah like in the long run you save money and it's like no you don't (laughs) you don't because people used to just you know they would keep the older versions on their computer and I think that's what like pissed off Adobe they're like no we want people to upgrade and we want to keep the revenue stream going, you know. So, so I
2: was just gonna jump in, and uh, I bought uh, the latest uh, Lady Gaga CD, and it came with uh, a link for the downloadable uh, copies of their music. And I mean, that's not something I was expecting. I was like, because I mean, I too, I have subscription to Spotify, so I would be like, well, I mean, I'm, I just want a physical copy, and like, I'm not really. I don't really care about the digital one because I kind of like have it already in a way, uh, in the sense of um, having the subscription to Spotify, but they have it for you there. And the funny thing is the day the album was released, I got the digital copy first. I got the link to it to download it. um, And I got the actual CD in like two months. So it's like, it's, I feel like it's really <laughs> ironic. Like, what are they trying to do with the physical and the digital music? It's like, they're still trying to market the physical copies. But at the same time, they're like, shoving the digital copy <laughs> to you. Like, whether you like it or not. Oh my
1: not. God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This also reminded me, sorry, last thing. I'm Just so many, like, amazing examples of, of you know, kind of the, the idea behind subscription models. There's this band called Wolfpack. Because Spotify, like, it's no secret. They're really bad towards artists, especially mm-hmm. indie artists, mm-hmm. right? It's not for a way for the artist to really earn money. But this band, Wolfpack, and they have, like, a very strong following. They don't have a manager. They're kind of, like, one of those, like, really big bands that's kind of going rogue. But <laughs> to finance one of their albums, what they did is uploaded the silent album on Spotify and told everyone on their fan base to listen to that uh, song. And they made so much in royalties and it's basically like if you play it, it's nothing like there's nothing happen. like it's just like as if you're having nothing, you know, and they cheated kind of Spotify on this and you know that Spotify was mad. obviously like the executives or whatever caught wind of this right but it's just one of those like examples where you know personal intervention and kind of exploiting a system that exploiting you in return was very uh, interesting.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting, like you mentioned in another section, you know, just like gaming the system, essentially, right? Especially, as you said, because Spotify really screws over a lot of of artists. Like, I I haven't purchased a subscription of Spotify, so, you know, I get ads, like, every, like you play one song and it's like 50 ads. So, you know, it's weird, like, they're making a lot of money, and I think they're like, for advertisers, there's like a certain set amount of money that they have to spend to even advertise on Spotify, so... They're not, they're not broke. I used to buy CDs a lot, you know, growing up, because this was before the streaming era, and I still have them, and I, I liked CDs because it was like, I can just, I buy it once, I can listen to it forever as many times as I want, as long as, you know, the CD doesn't, like, disintegrate or, you know, start skipping and stuff. As we got into, like, the digital, the more digital era, I would buy a CD, I would put it in my um, laptop, back when I had a laptop that had a, a CD player, and I would just, you know, I'd rip the, the CD, I would add it to my iTunes, and then, you know, the CD just kind of sits there and collects dust. Like Nua mentioned, there's like an interesting, you know, just like how physical and digital kind of coincide. And I think, you know, people also just didn't want a million CDs just to listen to one song on one album. So there's like pros and cons to those to those subscription service models. So an interesting, speaking of music, an interesting documentary I watched years ago, I and mean, then it's also available for free on the National Film Board's website is called R.I.P. A Remix Manifesto. The film talks about the changing concept of copyright within the context of the music industry and how it impacts remixing, sampling, and etc. It's been dubbed the world's first open-source documentary because the director, Brett Gaylor, encouraged people to remix the movie itself. So, as you probably guessed, the movie argues against copyright law because it says that corporations use it to stifle creativity and freedom of expression. Instead, Gaylor, so the director, encourages copyleft instead of copyright. So things like creative commons licenses. Yeah, That's yeah. really funny. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I think that was like the first time I was introduced to that concept. And it followed me since. And now I'm like kind of thinking yeah. of ways to work that into my thesis next year. Yeah, I remember
1: like Disney, Disney, the owner of Disney, Walt well, Disney, of course. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, He was, he loved copyright law. And, you know, mm-hmm. he advocated so much you know in in his day for you know the the rights to be increased because i think like after the death of someone there's like a certain amount of years where you can like use it afterwards like it's yeah
0: yeah in the
1: states it's 50 years like no one can ever use mickey mouse (laughs) because it's now like (laughs) tied to a corporation and not the person who like created it very interesting
0: Yeah. So the this documentary, so the Remix Manifesto also mentions how in the early two thousands, I don't know if any of you remember this, um, the Recording Industry Association of America with the backing of like major labels was suing people, so individuals, for illegally downloading music on file sharing websites like Napster. You know, and they were even suing children, elderly people, people who were, you know, who weren't even alive.
1: (laughs) Oh my god, that's me.
0: Right? They were like, they were going after people. And it was, it was, it was like from 2003 to 2008, there was about 35,000 Americans um, who were sued to discourage piracy. And I think it was their ISPs, so their internet service providers, who were like, yeah, this IP address is tied to this person. So that's how people were getting sued. So they were getting ratted out by their own ISPs because I I think at some point the ISPs were also getting sued. So everyone was getting sued. And then they were like, you know what? We're going to start suing individuals. And then in one case in 2009 in Boston, a student was fined over half a million dollars for downloading and distributing 30 songs. You know, just for 30 songs. So, you know, eventually it stopped because, you know, it was getting out of hand. It was getting really messy. And, you know, you have to wonder whether it was even worth it for all that trouble pursuing 35,000 people in litigations. Yeah. Is- yeah. The reward didn't justify the uh, journey. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't yeah. like as big of a payoff. Yeah. And it probably cost them more than, than what they were suing people for. But you got to uphold the law. <laughs> are some other interesting ways that people claim and enforce ownership and how that manifests itself in the digital sphere so for example we have content blocks based on location for example sometimes i try to watch like clips from american shows and they're blocked because it's like not available in your country or you know how netflix in different countries have different offerings because of copyright agreements between broadcasters and production companies you have the rights to broadcast a show from this date to this date in this in these countries um, you also have takedown notices copyright strikes we see this a lot on youtube with music and recently on twitch paywalls on news websites and they use your i believe they put cookies like those trackers on your computer that way they know that like oh yeah this person will you know read three of our articles and now we're gonna put a paywall up. And of course, who could forget the whole SOPA and PIPA controversy of 2012? So they were anti-piracy laws and intellectual property protection laws that led websites like Google and Wikipedia to have blackouts in protest. I mean, when you think about cookies, the name cookies—it sounds so (laughs)
1: unthreatening. Like, I I find you know maybe we should be talking about why they decided to call them cookies. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You know, Why, why didn't they decide to call them? leviathans (laughs) leviathans for, <laughs> for, you know 666 or something like that like something more appropriate meanwhile it's like cookies yeah. <laughs> it's,
0: like, yeah, right? it's like oh do you accept the cookies and they're like sure of course i accept the cookies sure. but you don't All know what the you cookies, cookies are enough. doing <laughs> who would say no right exactly no i feel like it's it's definitely an intentional use of of language in that sense Another interesting thing to look at is memes. Nama mentioned how she put a picture of hers on Tumblr and it was shared widely and no one was crediting her for it, you know? And it's, it's interesting to think about picture memes and video memes the same way. Sometimes you, see, you find them and they're watermarked, but it's not by the original copyright holder or the original creator. It'll be like a meme page or content mills that, you know, put their handle, their social media handles on somebody else's content. This can be tied back to Jen Liv's work in our exhibition, where she incorporates Baudrillard's theory on simulacra and simulation to illustrate how we allow representations and copies to replace the original and how the simulacra, so the representation, the imitation, becomes indistinguishable from reality itself. In a similar way, when we have memes and reaction photos and videos that get shared, downloaded, watermarked, cropped, compressed, Pixelized, etc. They take on different meanings, especially when they're taken out of their original context and inserted into new ones. It's kind of like this video I watched a while back. It was like the story of the meme, the success kid. So the, it's like this baby that like has his fist up and he's like on a beach and he has like sand in his mouth. So the story, from what I understand, it was like the parents talked about how they put the image of their son up on Flickr because they thought it was funny and it went, it was, you know, it was pretty popular instantly and then it became viral. Initially, the meme was that they were portraying the kid as a bully, which the parents didn't like because they didn't want that to be attached to the the image of their child. But eventually, it became the positive meme, you know, success kid as we know it today. I read that the parents uh, then licensed the image to companies so that if companies were using it, they were making profit off of that. And they even sued people and corporations and political parties who were using their son's image without their permission They were also able to use the success and the fame of this image and this meme to fundraise for the father's kidney transplant.
1: You know, I'm thinking about all the you know the early days of meme when it's like problem (laughs) and and all those like draw, like d- scribbly drawings and then all of a sudden it was like the faces of these individuals like and they ha- all had names like there was like obsessed girlfriend or something like that and you guys mm-hmm. remember and then there was like the success kid and it's interesting sometimes you know i i've i've watched like read about these people like the actual people and you know i don't think they're some of them are too ecstatic of of their image being circulated you know and and these like are very like momentous images of them you know and like they're kind of like defined by that and they become defined (laughs) by you know like obsessed girlfriend gets defined as always obsessive uh, even in real life, probably, there's, like, you know, if you if you meet her in real person, like, you can't, like, you can't just, you have to, like, very consciously separate this, like, momentous moment that the pictures are offering, like, fleeting, whatever, and this, you know, the, the actual person behind it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What you said kind of reminds me of, you know, other cases of memes where it's like a news report and people, you know, think it's funny that the, the way they're pronouncing things or the way they're saying things and then, you know, it gets remixed, it becomes a joke. So there is also that side, as you mentioned, people just take it as it is and they don't realize what the original thing was, just like the simulacra that um, we mentioned. Anyways, so I'm going to wrap up this segment by circling back to the original talking point, which was how digital and physical modes of claiming ownership coincide. In my opinion, photography is one of the most notable representations of this. In her essay titled, mm-hmm. Buying Myself Back, When Does a Model Own Her Own Image? American and English model Emily Ratajkowski writes about this very topic. She discusses how the different facets of ownership of her image and likeness overlap in the digital and physical spheres. And the essay begins with an anecdote about how she was sued for $150,000 by a paparazzi. because, So she posted an image of herself. On her instagram that he took of her when she was just like out and about and in the picture she's actually like hiding her face with a bouquet of flowers so it's like she doesn't want to be photographed she's photographed she uses that image to kind of mock the situation and then she gets sued because she doesn't own that photograph but it's of herself the essay dives deeper into how entitlement of men in her life so it wasn't just that paparazzi it was also boyfriends that she's had it was photographers on shoots it was artists you know the entitlement that they had over her image and how that extended to the entitlement that they had on her physical body so for example she talks about a nude photo of herself that was taken during a magazine shoot that she posted on social media and then that social media post was then printed on an oversized canvas and featured in Richard Prince's art exhibition Instagram paintings kind of just like took people's Instagram posts you know of celebrities and printed them on canvases and then had an art exhibition about that and in the essay, Emily Radikowski talks about how uncomfortable she felt at the show. And, you know, people were telling her, oh, you should be flattered. You're, you're featured in this, like, artistic exhibition. And, you know, she, she, she understood that aspect, but she still, you know, felt uncomfortable. Her image was on a canvas, and that, that piece itself was being sold for $80,000. But she was only paid $150 for modeling in the original shoot. And then afterwards, when the magazine started circulating, she was paid a few thousand dollars um, afterwards.
1: Yeah, I, I'm glad that she talks about the nude photo because it just keeps me, like, you know, it just keep back to the same thing. It's like, what is what is with people and the female body, the naked female body? Like, mm. there's so much uncomfortability uh, around it. Speaking not only as, you know, like maybe a mother breastfeeding her kid, which is like an extreme, to also like not being, you know, the free the nipple campaign is like basically like just normalize this. Normalize this without like sexualizing it. And even even in the in even in the you know like the 19th century, women were not even allowed to paint. You know, women in the academy, the art academy, were not even allowed in the room to paint a, a nude male or a nude female model. They were just like, and I don't understand. You know what what's the what's the deal? Like, what is this? It's really sinister to profit off of someone's body like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And even when you look at art history, like how many nude female paintings or sculptures exist out there. And yet women weren't allowed to, you know, do the same. They're not even allowed to paint their own sex. Like, Mm -hmm. why? (laughs) So strange. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always aware of the power dynamics that are at play when you're capturing someone's physical essence with a camera, especially if you're in a position of power over your subject. And, you know, in the field of photography, most photographers are white and male, um, and you'll often see young women as models, right? And that creates all kinds of issues as we see with, you know, photographers getting exposed during the Too the movement and also, you know, before and after that about how you know, a lot of them exploit these young models. And in some cases, you know, it becomes, it, it almost feels like extractive and exploitative. And um, in some cases, for example, in schools, there's very strict rules when it comes to taking pictures of children. So I wonder if the same care and consideration is taken for the children in developing countries who are photographed during volunteerism trips or who are plastered on NGO advertisements and billboards to get donations. And most of those donations end up going towards administrative costs. And a lot of those volunteerism trips, as some essays mentioned, aren't really, they don't really benefit the communities that they're serving.
1: The white it's- guilt complex, right? That's <laughs> that's what's, every time I look at that critically, and I'm thinking, well, it, it, it there is like this like sinister component, especially if you're posting them on social media, it takes on a completely different meaning.
0: Yeah, definitely. There's like a lot of saviorism there, but then there's also the other side of like, well, if we have pictures, then we we can, you know, we see it. We we we're like faced with that reality. So there's there's different layers um, to this even when we, we talk about, like, um, everything that was happening over the summer with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter wo- movement and, you know, all the police killings that were being filmed and even, like, the police brutality that was happening in protests. On so- on some level, this is, like, putting up videos of the deaths so that, you know, people get people react and they're like, oh, my God, you can't really contest it when you see it. But this is also someone's family member, this is someone's friend, and, you know, it's just kind of, like, death being spread. You know, it almost becomes trauma porn at at some points Mm -hmm. and then i guess the last point that i wanted to bring up was the the portrait of the afghan girl with the green eyes which is a pretty famous portrait the person who is photographed Shahbat gula i recently read an article about how the story behind that was that the photographer stepped into an all-girls islamic school in a um, refugee camp in afghanistan And, you know, he invited her space and personal boundaries to take her picture. And I think he was only able to take, like, one or two pictures because she ran away because she was so uncomfortable. And then her image was then published on National Geographic and sold for thousands of dollars and made the photographer really famous. And, you know, this was then without her consent or her parents' consent. Yeah, I know exactly which portrait, like, you're talking
1: about right now. I, it's really, uh, you know, like, there's the famous cliche saying of like a picture is a thousand words but when you don't Mm -hmm. know the context of that picture when you don't know the relationship of the person behind the lens and the person or subject or thing that's being you know um uh photographed it really you know there's this huge chance of misrepresentation that's Mm -hmm. often the case like you know you think you recognize something
0: but in fact it's not you know it's not real yeah and from what I understood like the photographer also yeah and from what I understood like the photographer also was misrepresenting the context itself of the of the portrait too and of what the situation like you know there was just no care in in my opinion that was taken and then he comes in he comes in he brings back the picture he's like reinterpreting the context and then people kind of took that picture as emblematic of what was going on in Afghanistan at the time and it's it's also sad too because a lot of the story behind it focused on the photographer and what he experienced when he was taking it, but no care was taken to who who is this person being photographed and what were the circumstances and what are her, what are her story? And, you know, this this only came out recently,
1: definitely things that many, many individuals like
0: fear similarly, uh, feel
1: similarly about, you know, their, their own artifacts. And there's always like this, like fight between museums of like between artifacts. it's like, oh, you know, it came from one place. That's where it should be, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. unless it's with permission.
2: This is the end of episode 3. For more, tune in to the next one.